morning, Derek. Morning, Neil. How's about it? All good. Yes, and here we are, rocking up to another show. Now, in a few minutes, we have Ricky D. Phillips. Um, Falcons expert. Yeah. He's written a few books about the Falklands, including First Casualty and a pictorial history of the Falklands. And he, just before he comes on air, he was letting us know he's working on a few new projects. So looking forward to talk to Ricky about that, about a war that we remember, I suppose, as children. Vividly, yeah. Yeah, with all those iconic images of the Argentinian Skyhawks, I believe they're, they're called, raining yeah. missiles down on the British fleet. Um, the the Exocet missile that, that sank. Missiles, uh, yeah, and um, Sir Galahad, all these names that reach out to us to this day. And I believe we've been talking to Ricky as well, Derek, about the fact that the Falklands still is still going on in some in some ways. Yeah. I want to yeah. ask about that. Still obviously a lot of uh unhappiness in, in Argentina. You know, if over. concerned yeah. the war is not over. So we'll be talking to Philip, to Ricky about that. And here he is now. If we if we could get into it then Ricky, you know, the, the Falklands War, as I just said there in the intro, you know, giving our ages away. I, I was eleven years of age, but I remember it so well. Um as as do you, Derek. It was just these iconic images that were, have become iconic images from the TV screens. Is, is that something, you know, that, that really grabbed your attention about the Falklands or what brought you to, to your interest in the Falklands in the first place? Well, I think, I mean, it, it's certainly in, I think it's on the first page of the, the book I'm perhaps most famous for, The First Casualty, mm. um, where one of my first true memories, you know, when you can play a memory back in your mind, not just like a still image, but as actually like a video in your head, um one of my first true images was the the task force coming home and um you know land of hope and glory is blaring out and everyone's waving flags on the tv and you know there was my dad was dancing around the front room wearing a world war one tin hat which he painted up with the words falklands liberation army wow. and my mum was dancing around drinking a, a, a glass or knowing her probably a bottle of wine and, and um just looking and going, what the hell is going on here? You know, and it was that's one of the most surreal moments that I could that I could really really think of. Um, yeah. And so it, it sort of stuck with me. And you know, much as I call that the first real memory of life, um, you know, I was only sort of you know almost four years old, I suppose, at the time. That was only it. So I'm a, a wee bit younger than yourselves, but I do remember a slight two or three second bits, probably. A year or two before, my parents had actually sailed on the SS Canberra. So, of course, the Canberra, the great white whale, mm. went out there as well. And I remember that very vaguely as a kid. So I sort of wake up, and my first real connections that I can remember seem to all be Falklands War connections. And it just, it was always a good feeling. It was a nice thing. And that's what, what I associated with it, I suppose. Right. And, and yeah, it was like, like for some people in, in Britain, it even though the Falklands were like how many thousand miles away, it felt like a war that was very close to home, particularly in, in your own example there, like, you know, reached right into the sitting rooms of many British homes. Was that across the board or was it just, you know, a select few who may have had direct military connections or, or you know, a, a, an affinity with, with the place? Or do you think, do you think it was across the board in Britain in, 19, in the 1980s? I think it it sort of was, but I think it grew with time, you know, on um, on April 2nd. I mean, a lot of people, um, when they said Argentina has invaded the Falklands, it's, it's one of these stories, it's sort of, 
it's wonderfully apocryphal, but it is also true in a lot of examples. You know, a lot of people thought, oh, my God, the Argentina's invaded some islands in Scotland, you know. And, right. <laughs> and of course, Falkland, Falkland is in Fife, just over the water from me. So, um, you know, that that's reasonable to assume. But most people didn't really know too much about them. You know, we get very, I suppose, conceited. We We forget that 40 years ago, People did not have the internet. People didn't know stuff. You know, the, what you probably have was like a 50-book collection of the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, and an atlas, and you just had to go through that. So I think that certainly the idea that British territory and British people had been attacked was, was something that certainly, you know, riled everyone up and got people searching through those Britannias and looking on those atlases. But I think what really, really did it was the images of my friends in the Royal Marines, Naval Party 8901, being laid out on the floor mm. uh, in Port Stanley and the, the Argentine commandos and everything else standing over them. And it, it was the very image of the, the fascist junta stomping on democracy. And it's certainly for a country that, you know, in 1982, and you've got to remember World War II had ended in 1945. It's actually it was World War Two was closer to the Falklands War than mm. we are now to the Falklands War, and that gives you an idea. Mm. So suddenly, all these images flashed up in our head. All we'd had from you know the 50s, 60s, 70s was war films, and suddenly mm. this image of these British people being stomped on. It was very easy to make that connection mm. and to say, you know, it felt like the Nazis are stomping on us again. I think it automatically hit the right. The right switches here at home with the British people, and of course, it grew over time. Good point. And, and presumably, now they like, as far as I know, that the islanders themselves would identify as British for the for the most part. That'd be correct. Yeah, I mean, they um, they are they would say they are British Falkland Islanders. I mean, uh, in a a recent poll, I think it was something like. Uh, 60% thereabouts identified as Falkland Islanders, about 30% as British, and you know about 10% as various other. But what you've got to remember is that Falkland Islanders are made up of exactly 60 different nationalities, national identities, and ethnicities. Mm. But they all identify as Falkland Islanders. They're a people, um, but of course their their nationality on paper is British, in their hearts is British. But they are they are legally and they identify as Falkland Islanders. So but ultimately, yes, they're, they're British Falkland Islanders, I suppose is the best way of putting it. So Fair. to sum up the campaign then, Ricky, so my, my understanding is, is this. The, the islands were invaded. The, the small party of Royal Marines, very as you, as, as you correctly recall, they're lying on the ground. I mean, these were actually real British soldiers then, with guns being pointed at their heads while they lay on the ground. You had this the, the junta that sent in the invasion, um, a junta that was kind of riding, wasn't doing well at home, so decided to invade the islands as a kind of like a, a boost um, to their own power. They successfully managed to invade and occupy the islands. The British, surprising the world, sent a task force, what, four or 5,000 miles? 8,000 miles. 8,000, excuse me, 8,000 miles down into the, the, the deepest, it's surprising the entire world, even their allies, the United States. Um, the campaign was short, but incredibly brutal by all accounts, you know, particularly on, on the land invasions, but also in the air. 
and then eventually the, the plucky Brits took back the island from the Argentinians after, as I said, a short but brutish campaign, raised the Union Jack, and that was it, and the war was over. Now, am I just that that is that's a simplification of what happened, or is that is that kind of close to the truth to bring people back back to nineteen back to nineteen eighties? I mean, if you if you had to sum the the Fulton's War up in a in a nutshell, you've you've probably done it. I mean, um, how complex it is, and there are still so so many things we're mm. still finding out today. And you know, through my own work and my own research, there are still things that I'm presenting today. There's there's projects I'm working on, new books I'm working on which are putting out new things that have never been spoken about. And, um, you know, so you can delve for a war that lasted 74 days from invasion to liberation. Um, it's almost ridiculous to say, but it's true that you, you virtually cannot run out of material. And, um, you know, I suppose if you had to wrap it up in a nutshell and say that's the Fulton's War, yes. But, of course, it just extrapolates out from there, you know, ad infinitum. Brilliant. And that brings us on very, very neatly onto what are, like, as you said, all these many years ago, what, what is there new to the to Falklands War that you're able to, to, to find out? Well, I mean, for openers, I mean, we had, I say we, historians, the historical community, had largely considered the Falklands War was done, dusted. Mm -hmm. um, that is the history, that is the story, and you know, we can pretty much close the lid on that. And um, there was, there's always going to be more things. You, you tend to find from, if you're writing the history of a war, uh, and you'll see this in Ukraine as well, you know, books will come out about strategies and then they'll mm. drop down into tactical levels and things like that. And then they sort of granulate down and they spread far and wide into individual stories and individual memoirs and things like that. Um and that's kind of where we got. We're into the memoirs side of the Falklands War. A lot of, a lot of uh, guys they're now in their sort of sixties and some in their seventies, and they're starting to sit down and write their memoirs and give stories. Whereas they used to, you know, military men would just say that was in the past. I did my bit, and a lot of them move on. Um, yeah. But in terms of, where, but in that granular level is often where you find new things that you say. Well, all the historians said that. This proves it wasn't true. And um, this is why suddenly there is kind of a, a, a wonderful resurgence on things. And you pick something up and then you start looking at the evidence afresh. You challenge what you thought you always knew and you get a whole new history out of it. Um, I mean, there's over, I, I used to know the number exactly. I, I want to say 519, I think, secret files that have not been opened on the Falklands War. Um, I know, as a subject at least, what's in some of them. Um, certainly not all of them, but I could tell you what a lot of them will pertain to or will be about. Um, but no one can know everything, you know, and we are still guessing at these things. So it's very far from a done and dusted subject. And I think where there's a question and where there's a new account from someone that gives that question validity, we as historians have to go back and ask it again. So there's a lot more still to come out of it. I think American involvement in the war, um, Soviet involvement, Chilean involvement, um, things like Operation Shutter. We don't hear that word said, Operation Shutter. In fact, if you Google Operation Shutter, all you'll probably get is me talking about it on Twitter. If you Google Operation Monkey, 
you won't get many people talking about that. Again, myself on social media, I will talk about it. But these things are all kept very much under wraps. So there's a lot more still to come out. And I think one of the things that people find, and it was one of the things I always wanted to do, was that every time you had a book with the, the name Ricky D. Phillips written on it, you know I'm not just rehashing an old campaign, an old battle, but you are going to get something new out of it. And that is, is what I always do. So there's a lot more to come. Like really, really interesting stuff. Is there one particular, without giving the game away, first of all, sorry, Ricky, what, what are you actually working on next? Is it, is it another book? Um, is it an ongoing project? What, what are you actually working on to bring these new truths to light, as it were? Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, a, I can tell you how I work. I know quite a few historians work this way, that we have our, our sort of project box and our sluice pile. And, you know, we start with a concept and we run through it and you've got a good bit of research and there's not a book in it and it sort of goes into your little your little box or your in tray and then you're working on something else and then you think oh that bit there you know and you you tend to dissect a few concept books and put them together um mm. and you sort of keep them for the one day one of the things that i have started to do so obviously the first casualty came first and that's been a, a six time number one bestseller you know they call it the modern classic of the Falklands war and I think and I hope in a hundred years time, people will still study first casualty. Um, then came last letters from Stanley. And they, this was the first book in the English language to tell the story from the Argentine side in their own words for 32 years. Um, and again, that was another bestseller. What I've started to go into is looking more at the um, pictorial histories. So, Historians and fans of history will probably know the Osprey series of books. Um, and they're very, very good because an Osprey book is like a it's a microscopic view of a certain battle or campaign or incident. And it looks at absolutely everything. Um, and a historian will know automatically if you want to really, really know a, a battle or a subject inside out, you get the Osprey book. They're very pictorial and everything else. But the historians who work on them work on them to a perfect little microscopic level you have everything and the Falklands War didn't really have that it had kind of general swathes over it and um, I, I did consider sort of writing some for Osprey but the problem is that Osprey you get a one-off payment and then the book belongs to them and I thought no I can do more with these and have a bit more control so I started writing the pictorial histories I've got two out currently which is uh the Fulton's Invasion, a pictorial history, and a, a book which was a wonderful concept, a book called Tied with Wires. And that's someone said to, uh, probably the nicest thing someone ever said, the first truly original book on the Fulton's War for about 30 years. And I thought, yes, it is. Um, and there's so many more of those coming where people can really start to collect the editions and understand the Fulton's War at that level, incident by incident. There's a lot more of those coming as well. What, what, what is it, Ricky, you know, that, okay, so obviously there's been a bit of controversy um, around uh, First Casualty. And, and what is it, do you think, that upsets some in the historical community? Um, I think that the problem is that when we as historians, uh, we look at a, a certain history or a certain event and we say, oh, yes, that's, that's that, you know, and that's, that goes on the bookshelf there and that's how that incident happened. And I know that bit. And then when someone comes along and says, actually, let's look at this again, because I think 
I think everyone's wrong. And the, the problem we get as historians is that history has to be referenced. In other words, I call it, it says here, history. Someone else said this, so I'll say that, because everyone else is saying it. And we stop thinking. We just copy, and so long as you can put a reference point, you know, that was that's Professor Lawrence Friedman in the official history, or that's, uh, you know, um, Nick Vanderbilt in his, or wh whomever's. Um, we stop asking the questions we should be asking, which is why we're historians. And it's so easy to suddenly go back and just reference what everyone else said without actually giving it original thoughts and research, just because we assume it's a done and dusted subject. Mm. Um, I think the Falklands invasion, which of course is first casualty, is the story of the Falklands invasion told by the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy men who were there, their Argentine opponents and the Falkland Islanders in the middle. And it it was certainly the world's first and probably still only three-sided first-person narrative history. Mm. It had never been attempted. It had never been done. And it challenged everything. When I spoke earlier about this, this granular level where we start, start to find out things that simply nobody had ever spoken about. And the Falkland Islanders had never spoken about what they saw in the middle of it. The Argentine accounts, we didn't have them here in the UK. Everyone had pretty much written off those Royal Marines because they saw those photos I spoke of earlier of them laying out on the road. And a lot of people called them cowards. A lot of people said, no, they weren't. What the hell could they have done? They did their best. But nobody knew exactly what they had done. And I found that the Fulton's invasion, when you bought a book on the, the Fulton's War, the invasion normally got like one or two pages. Yeah, the Falklands were invaded and this happened. Now let's get on with the real Falklands War. And I said, no, hang on. Let's have a look at it again. Um, I actually tend to think that the veterans and historians, certainly in the UK and people who were there, have all absolutely welcomed First Casualty. Um, you know, everyone has realized now these guys, more books have come out based on my own um they were on tv recently this year of course on ben fogel's show i believe it just won a big award as well and so suddenly people are believing them the world challenged this history and their history has changed and i think a lot of very set in stone people don't like their history changing you know um i think most of the controversy however a couple of people in the uk a lot of it has come from argentina you might must remember of course they lost the Falklands War, and Invasion Day was the day they got to win. So in Argentina, I am pretty much the Grinch who stole Christmas, and I have received a lot of. Um, and when I say controversy, I mean that there was there was a website about me. There have been hoax blogs about me. There have been fake wikis about me, and you know, I I used to sort of Google myself. Um, you know, at the end of every week, just to see what I'd supposedly been up to, you know, it's sort of these people trying to turn you into a, a weird cartoon character of yourself. Um, so there's been a lot of things. And I think some silly people have read those articles or blogs or what have you, and have chosen to believe certain parts out of it. Um, there's not a lot you can do. If you go back and answer those people, you're sort of giving it the oxygen it needs to spread, you know, but Certainly, one of these uh, one of these things from Argentina has actually gone into like a stalking case. It's that bad, you know. This person's been following me for four years, um, and I'm sure if I, if I wrote a coloring book, he would have come back and said I used the wrong shade of green. 
I, I think, you know, as a writer myself, um, Ricky, not, not of historical subjects, but, you know, a couple of books I did create some, there's no problem with controversy. You know, there's no problem with, particularly when it comes to histories. And uh, we had a recent uh, guy on a former Navy um, SEAL Team 6 member whose book created massive controversy in the US over the account of the Osama bin Laden raid. And we asked him about that and he was able to come, you know, years after writing, I asked him, would you change anything in it? And he said, absolutely not. I think where, you know, if you, you were saying, you know, you got the accounts from the Islanders, from the Argentinians and from the British soldiers, if they had taken issue with it, then then your credibility would be in question, right? But Absolutely. if you have, if you if if you have historians, you know, for want of better, you know, armchair warriors debating it backwards or forwards whether this actually did or didn't happen, and they weren't actually there, then I think you know it, it's an open playing field. You, you are as entitled to have your opinion and voice as they are, right? So just getting back to the original point, if, if some of the people that you claim to have interviewed had the issue with it, then that that's where you're running into problems, right? Absolutely. I mean, nobody who was there has turned around and said, oh, this is, you know, mm. that just because the history is different to what everyone already always knew, the people who were there have all embraced it and welcomed it and said yes. Um, and from that, actually, a lot of guys who were unsure what was going to happen with it jumped on board and said, can I be in it? You know, and there have been sort of various rewrites of first casualty because more people wanted to be in it and what you have to then do of course is you have to deconstruct your history bring it back to that granular level and be prepared to change your mind or mm. change what you thought you were right on because now new evidence has changed that and i think that's that's something that you know all historians should should strive to do is always challenge your own perceptions and say oh i was wrong actually this puts it in a different light and now so that so i've always been willing to move with the evidence that i have um but you mentioned an interesting word there of course when you say you're entitled to your opinions and it's something i'm very very strict on a a historian at least as i see it a historian doesn't get to be in their own book a historian's opinions should stay out of their book um opinions on history you can go down you can go down the pub right now you'll hear a lot of opinions mm. but history should be an examination of exactly what happened and why and when we can't answer those questions we can at least ask them um this was also something i had with um uh, some some very senior veterans recently i was talking to them about some things that they could have put in their books which would have challenged all of our perceptions and one of them, I won't mention his name, very, very senior man um, in the Fultons. And he said, I didn't put that in my book because I couldn't answer the question. Mm. And I said, but you could have asked the question and left it open. He said, no, I felt that was too much of a loose end. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things about that. You know, again, there's still more to be said, even when we think that, well, the senior men would know. They haven't because they didn't want to give their opinion on what and why. They didn't want to leave an open question. And it's a question most of us don't even know existed. Right. Something there, what 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 interests me, um, I suppose being a, an amateur historian, myself and Neil, and obviously we're, we're, we're doing this this gig here, but pretty brave. You know, I mean, you, you didn't take the typical 
route uh, to publication or let's let's say the tip have the typical motivation for publication um you know obviously a lot of history professors and things like that in oxford they need to write a few books um as, as part of uh, of what they do but um you know it, it was a huge commitment and uh, to go and, and start piecing all this together to go through all those interviews and 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 be shooting in the dark and then take the brave step um, you know, financially speaking, I'm sure there was hardship involved uh, on actually publishing your own book. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a sort of the process of gathering the information and of trying to make sense of I mean, over 300 people were spoken to at this time. And, and um, it was my my front room at the time was a sea of piles of paper in different stacks and suddenly you go right so those guys are in that part we'll put them there and then trying to work out everyone's got their own perspective but you're trying to see it from three different angles from the you know the the british the argentine the Falkland islanders you're trying to build a 3d image and turn it into a running narrative not everyone's saying the same thing mm. you know some people say no this happened before no this happened after and then you'd have to go well what did the argentines say so if one of those thinks it was before the other can't remember Oh, this Falkland Islander saw that, and eventually you, you build up as close a 3D picture as you can. Um, and what had happened, of course, Casualty came about um, almost by accident, and I stumbled upon a lot of things that suggested that the Falklands invasion had been untold, undertold, uh, told, told badly, told wrong. And I thought, well, you know, there's enough here to ask the question again and it, it sort of began life as this a three-part blog which went really big and i thought you know a, an experienced Falklands war historian would have picked this up because i want to read that book and what came up instead was these royal marines and then the argentines sort of came off the back of that and then the Falkland islanders came up and it started to snowball you know i was trying to give it away and the royal marines said no you're writing it and i said no three times i said no you're surely you know, there would be someone, you know, I, I was more known for, say, Napoleonic work and things like that that I'd done. And they said, if anyone else was going to do this, they said at the time, they've had 35 years to do it. They're not doing it yet. We choose you. And so I was told, basically, no, you can't say no. Um, this was going to be a story that was going to take a very, very special kind of publisher. And it turned out to be a, uh, a very, very nice man Falkland's veteran himself in fact had been a submarine commander in the Falklands war um head of a company called navy books in Liscard, and so they were the publisher um and we went through all the process right until the very very end when bear in mind as a former submarine commander of course he signed lots of official secrets and he gave me a call and i remember it very well in fact i was i was walking with my dogs in the park and it was it was, I want to say, December the 16th or something like that. It was absolutely freezing. And he phoned me up and said he'd received a very disturbing phone call from the um, the powers that be, so to speak, telling him – in fact, I can tell you the words that he told me. They said, they said you can't publish that. And he said, why not? And they said, because he's right, where the hell did he get this from? It's classified. These were the, the very words verbatim. And he said, I, they, you know, they, they threatened my business. They threatened me with jail. They threatened me with a D notice. They can seize everything. He says, I don't know what to do. We are at publication. We are printing. And I'm being told if this book comes out, 
I, I could go to jail and lose everything. What I did was buy all rights from Navy Books um, to basically fund it all myself to absolve them from blame. So when people say self-published, that is absolutely not true. I simply bought over the publishing process um, from them to absolve the then managing director um, from a lot of things that were going to happen to him. And, um, you know, I'm sure he, he would, I'm sure he's glad that he didn't go to prison, you know, but if nobody had uh, had threatened him, you know, it, it would have been a, a fantastically uh, lucrative thing. And I needed that kind of publisher who had that vested interest, who wasn't just going to say, yes, yeah, another book, there we go, we slung it out, and that's that's the process. The bravery, of course, was then having to set up and buy the entire process and take it over and project manage that to completion. Um, it was a very, very hard process. You know, I can remember laying amongst sheets of floor on, uh, sorry, sheets of paper on the floor and, you know, as, actually sort of rocking and gibbering to myself and thinking, how did this work? And then there was a sort of a moment where it all just clicked and fell into place. Um, but certainly for anyone saying that, uh, you know, that First Casualty was ever, again, this is what certain detractors say, oh, it was self-published. It never was. It mm. never was. It went for an entire publication, editing, and everything else process. It was at print at the point at which I bought the rights to it to save someone else from getting in trouble due to his previous association with the war. Right. I mean, you know, you know, there's no no problem getting generating controversy here, and sometimes you've got to step up to to stand over your words, Ricky. You know, to take extreme measures like that. If we could just bring it back to the battles themselves, Ricky. Um, like like I said earlier, we have this kind of story handed down over the the, the couple of decades since it happened of the the plucky Brits and the you know the bad Argentinians. Were the British as good um, as as the outcome would have suggested and were the argentinians that bad we have these images of these poor kind of conscripts shivering in the colds and herded together and sitting in wet fields you know with their with their weapons all stacked up is is it as was it i mean we we know it was a, it was a close run thing as wellington would have said about waterloo in some regards particularly particularly in the air but what, is is that the case that the Argentinians were just bound to lose because they were that bad and the British were bound to win because they were that good. Um, no, I don't think that's true. I mean, it's, it's again, like when we spoke about the, the images right at the start and they gave that impression, uh, you know, the British laying on the floor. And that was the impression that everyone has carried for all these years. The images towards the end of the war, um, they sort of had, you know, very much the same effect. Um, I think these were compounded, these images of, you know, frozen youngsters and what have you in the Argentine ranks. Um, it was kind of summed up with a, a term, one of the, the first Argentine book on the subject, Los Chicos de la Guerra by Daniel Conn, you know, the boys of the war. Mm. And this very much summed up that image. Um, Daniel Conn made a big thing about it. But now sort of... Um, 40 years later in Argentina, they're having a sort of contra movement saying they weren't boys, they were men and everything else. Um, in real terms, were the Argentines that bad? No, I mean, there was certainly a difference in the quality. But when we talk about 
conscripts, not knowing what, what end of a rifle the bullet came out of. That was a small percentage. Mm. Um, over 60% of the standard Argentine force weren't raw conscripts. They were at least reservists. They have done, they'd just done their year's worth of conscripted service. Most of them had, in fact, taken part in some of the biggest um, live-firing war games and everything else in their year of service. So they had some experience. They were not bad in that respect. Mm. Um, a lot of them were professional. There's 601 and 602 Commando, and there's Gendarmerie, and things like that. But they were top-notch. They were as good as our best guys. Mm. Um, their Marines were exceptionally good um you know they had they brought a lot of professionals to the show but what they did have was a sort of big middle ground and then there was a you know perhaps perhaps sort of 30 40 percent interspersed sometimes were these sort of raw conscripts that we hear about but to say that this little bit at the bottom was the whole that's the image we have and that's certainly wrong um were the british that good yeah, they were. I mean, again, m there were mistakes made. There were people who perhaps shouldn't have held their command. Um, the obvious name being, say, uh, Brigadier Tony Wilson, who has come in for all sorts of uh, conjecture, controversy and everything else. He was slammed recently in a, a TV documentary all about it. Obviously, he's he's not here to, de to defend himself or what have you since passed on. Mm. But um, I think to say that we were always going to win is not true one of the things you asked me you know what new is there to find out about the war um what isn't known is that sandy woodward was told as before he sailed off he was told by admiral stavely that he was going to be the man to carry the can for a british defeat good luck old boy that's okay. what he was told we expected to lose the United States expected us to lose as the task force sailed. They called it a futile voyage to nowhere. The Soviet Union said we'd lose. Like I said, and even our own defense white papers and our own military men said we'd lose. Um, the difference is, of course, they, they, these people shouldn't bet against the British military. We have a nasty habit of winning in a tight spot. But the Argentines, they didn't have it easy. They had a lot um, at their disposal, which could have easily won that war. What they didn't do was use any of it in the right orders, the right time, the right amount, and they didn't coordinate. What won the war was that the British coordinated their forces on every single objective. Um, and this great sort of, you know, inter-service operability, it wasn't seamless. No one's going to say it was seamless, but certainly between uh, Julian Thompson and Michael Clapp, that was where the greatest sort of cooperation happened. And we began to gain ground and actually win the war. In the Argentine forces, there was no coordination. And that's what really lost it. They still outnumbered us. They had good positions and everything else. Argentina can be said, it can be said they lost the war through squandering every opportunity they actually had. Right. And what sort of... Sorry, Neil. There was a like you were saying, you know, in what they had at their disposal, they they did have some crazy inventions, right? Yeah. What were they? I mean, so I suppose you're you're going into um, 
the book I wrote tied with wires, which is a it's a it's an Argentine term, con alambre, as um I, I suppose the our translation would be to to lash something up or something like that. And it, it was a study that had um some people have had a go, what's this thing? What's that? They're looking at pictures of something that looks weird and wonderful and no one knew what it was. And I over the course of several years gathered all these things together. And of course the Argentines, much as they had they had good kit, but they have this skill, this skill they could tied with wires to take some smash bit of kit here and another bit there and another bit, put it together. And they came up with these wonderful inventions and devices. And I, I always say the book tied with wires, like I said, the first properly original book, no one had ever covered this. I called it 80% A-Team. You know, we always remember the A-Team every year, every, not every, every week, sorry, they get locked in a barn by the baddies and there happens to be a, a combine harvester, welding kit, tools and everything else. And, Give them half an hour, they come out with the tank. Um, and it's very much like this. So it's sort of 80% A-team, 10% MacGyver. It was really good. And then 10% Wiley Coyote at the back, you know, which is going to go really bad. And um, the most famous uh, device they came up with was what, what's known as the ITB, Installation Tiro Beretta, which is a, a land-based Exocet launcher. This had never been done before. And um, it, you know, it required massive computers on board a ship to launch an Exocet. Um, and then, of course, we had the aerial version, the AM-39. But to get an Exocet missile, bolt it onto a trailer, and then have all this other kit around it, which basically got rid of a ship's computers. And they were using things like stopwatches, an old telephone exchange plug board and things like that to try and fool the missile into believing it was being programmed by a warship. And of course they, you know, they uh, very nearly sank HMS Glamorgan with one. It, it would have sunk if not for the actions of a, a very, very brave man opening the cocks to to right the ship. Um, that was one of the, their greatest inventions and we nicked it. We did nick it and we, we patented it as our own, as Excalibur, and we sold it to the world. Um, the their ways of masking their radar and things. This had never been done before, and it worked perfectly. And again, companies like Westinghouse stole these lash-up jobs they did and put them out on their new models of kit. Um, but they came up with loads of, of fascinating ways of, of doing things, multiple rocket launchers, um, you know, weird and wonderful uh, guns of various descriptions and things. And... I didn't only go and look at them and what happened to them. Did they work? Where were they used? How were they used? But also tried to find what actually happened to them. Is there anything that still exists of them? Um, their multiple rocket technology was, you know, it wasn't, it, it was brilliant in conception. Um, and some of it really did work. Um, and we were very, very lucky to have a, a few other devices actually get blown up that were on their way there. There was, uh, a device they'd made which was going to go to Goose Green and it was going to fire, um, I think it was something like 27 five inch rockets or something in a salvo and they could do area saturation like cluster heads. I mean, that could have maimed the guys of two power. Um, somewhere in one of the uh, itineraries of one of the cargo ships that we blew up is a fascinating device. Again, I mentioned this in 
in the book tied with wires, and they're, they're talking about a, a 20-ton rocket ship. What was it? We don't really know. But it's a 20-ton rocket ship, whatever that is. Um, obviously didn't get there in the end, and it sounds I'm, I'm very grateful that it didn't. Um, and they did wonderful things, even there in, in the air, um, what they were trying to make Pacaras do and things like that, turn them into torpedo dive bombers and mine layers. And um, the way they turned a, a C-130 Hercules into a long-range bomber, which if they'd have taken that on as a concept, converted more and done it earlier, they could have won the war with that. They were attacking, uh, you know, transport ships. They were attacking um, RFAs and auxiliaries and things like that. They could have wiped us out without us ever knowing about it. If they'd have had half a dozen converted bombers, the long-range things as well, um, that could just take out our support and supply ships at will, they could have won that war. Um, and it was just a case of too little, too late for a lot of it. But their devices were utterly fascinating. Wow. They, it seemed like they were almost making up as they went along, but by pure fluke, they could have completely changed the outcome by, by the sounds of it. Um, there was a lot of controversies. It's, we were talking about controversies earlier about your book, Ricky, but the, the war itself generated so many different controversies. One of the most enduring ones is the, the General Belgrano, right? And mm -hmm. now, just for listeners who may, I'm sure everybody's heard of the General Belgrano. So this was a, a converted, I think, an old US destroyer, or actually it was bigger, it was a battleship, right? And it was outside the so-called exclusion zone, which I understand was imposed by the British. So any, any ship aircraft that went into this zone around the Falklands at the time the battles were taking place was, was fair game. The General Belgrano, according to some, was actually not in the exclusion zone or was sailing away from it when it was suddenly torpedoed and went down very quickly with horrific loss of life. Now this, whatever about the Argentinians on the street feel about the war these days, there's still a lot of anger and bitterness. And I understand still protests in parts of Argentina over the sinking of the General Belgrano. Am I right? Am I, is my summation correct there, Ricky? And if so, can you lead us on to, to where, where do we stand on the General Belgrano today? You weren't, I mean, to a point, you certainly weren't too bad. And to other points, you're repeating perhaps what leads to a lot of that anger or misunderstanding, which is simply a, a lack of information. So. Belgrano was, she, she started off life, um, she was technically called a Brooklyn-class light cruiser. Um, she was the only ship, in fact, to make it out of Pearl Harbor. Um, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, she made it out. She even tried to turn her guns on some of the, the Japanese ships. Um, wow. Her and, and one other ship, in fact, people forget Argentina actually had two of them. Uh, the, they had the General Bragana and the Noy de Julio, but the, the sister ship was in bad repair and was now getting cannibalized to keep the Belgrano going. Um, so if they'd have had two of them opera operating, we could have been in, in hot water. Um, to put the Belgrano into perspective, I mean, what you've got to remember firstly is that, it, that British ships had, most had a single, some had the old dual mount, the double gun, but they were four and a half inch guns. Belgrano, and they only had, you know, one of them. Belgrano had 15 6.1-inch guns, eight 5-inch guns, an absolute plethora of anti-aircraft um, guns and things like that. It had um, 
Seacat missiles, which, okay, weren't very good, but um, there we go. She had had Exocet missiles uh, uh, on her at one point, but they'd actually they replaced them with dummy launchers and eventually they took them off. But we didn't actually know that in the war. There was still a lot of speculation. And, you know, I've got official reports. Can we find out if Belgrano is still carrying Exocet? Um, bear in mind, she also had as escorts two uh, former big gun American destroyers. These are carrying six five-inch guns and four MM38 Exocets apiece. Six five-inch guns. An average British warship there had a single four and a half inch gun. So put these ships together, they outgunned everything we had at the same time, you know. And um, certainly Belgrano's guns could could outrange ours. Um, so it was certainly a threat. It was the southern arm of a a pincer movement. Um, Argentines tend to call it Lombardo's trident after Admiral uh, Jose Lombardo, who came up with it. Others called it Operation Banzai, was kind of the um, the loose term they used in the uh, the Argentine military halls of power. Um, now, what had happened, of course, Belgrano gets sunk on the second of May. Um, as early as sort of uh, twenty, I want to say twenty fifth of April, off the top of my head, um, Argentina knew that the total exclusion zone, the two hundred mile exclusion zone, was an exclusion zone for all ships aircraft and anything anything wandering into that was likely to be a target but what people fail to understand is that that was an attempt to limit the conflict what we are saying is if you're a fishing boat and you get in there and you get blown up we can't do anything about it if you fly your boeing 747 over it and you get shot down sorry you were warned you know we we can't be second guessing who everyone is Anyone in that 200-mile zone had better be a combatant. Anyone else, stay out of it. However, everyone, including Argentina, in writing, was very well aware that there was no exclusive combat zone. Anything outside of the 200-mile exclusion zone, which proved a threat or was perceived as a threat, could and would be attacked at any time, which Argentina knew. So firstly... You hear it a lot in Argentina. You can see it online, still repeated every single day. They attacked us outside the war zone. It was illegal. It was a, a war crime, they say. There was no war zone. There was no safe zone. Um, so that's the first thing. Was Belgrano sailing away? No, it wasn't. Belgrano was in a holding zigzag pattern um, because the northern arm of the pincer had come into contrary winds and their aircraft carrier on the northern pincer, the uh, Ventichinka de Mayo, couldn't, she didn't have enough wind um, to actually launch her aircraft. So there was a delay, and the Belgrano and her sister ships, and it's not sister ships, her escort ships, were in a holding pattern. What had happened in the meantime, and this is another thing, this came out of, only last year, came out of going down to the granular level of things that come out uh, when you go down to individual accounts. Obviously, Belgrano did not know that HMS Conqueror was shadowing her and had been for some time. Now, Conqueror could have taken that shot at any one of a number of opportunities, but didn't do so. What changed was that Belgrano, at midnight, between the 1st and 2nd of May, received an order. That order was to advance 
and attack the British task force and attempt to sink HMS Hermes at all costs. That order, now this isn't official, this is one of those secrets we'll find out later, that order was intercepted by Conqueror and Belgrano just became a target. The person who sent the message to Belgrano to advance and attack the British task force and sink HMS Hermes effectively signed her death warrant. Now, Belgrano had orders to advance and attack. It just became a threat. It was sunk. Um, and that was fair. And it was reasonable. And you get all these all these people have come out with a concept of, you know, um, it was done to scupper the peace plan or to win an election. or something. It wasn't. It was a major piece that had just been removed from the board. It had to be removed. And, you know, it had just, if it went back to port, we'd have probably just left it alone um, because it wasn't interfering with us. But when it was ordered to advance, it had become a threat. And of course, Paul Thatcher was put on TV with that, um, that lady shouting at her and whatever else. And the lady had her on the ropes because Thatcher could not say we can decipher the Argentine communications and um, the Americans who made the crypto machines are helping us to do it, which only came out in the last year or two as well. She couldn't say that. So Thatcher was on the ropes getting walloped by this, this, you know, angry old lady on the news because she couldn't say what was actually the case, that we were decoding the Argentine uh, communications. We could already decode them. But the Americans cut a lot of hours off of this process, you know, sometimes days off of this process. And so we knew what was happening. We couldn't tell people that. But certainly Belgrano was a, a legitimate target. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had a beer with people who've been on Belgrano, you know, and they, they certainly hold no, uh, no anger about it. Right. Well, there's a whole, you know, not that I knew a whole lot about it, but just, just in, in my question, to what you just answered there, I pretty much, you know, took in all these parts from my memory of what was said about Belgrano and pretty much what you're telling us flies completely in the face of that, you know? So that, that just goes to show how these kind of stories come down through the years and are, you know, repeated and then just become perceived or acknowledged fact. You exactly. know, that, that's astonishing. Like I, I never knew any of this and why you know why would I? I haven't done the research but this i suppose is why it's important to revisit these you know massive moments in in history and to correct some of the perceived wrongs because you know it's dangerous because it's still like i said there are still daily protests you know in parts of argentina over the quote-unquote murder of these sailors that were on the belgrana when what you're just outlining there was it was it was you know very much a, a part of the action and it was, and I think this is something when we talk about how first casualty um, changed those perceptions. We had those ingrained images. Here's what happened in the invasion. And mm. then it comes down to granular. We talked to the people involved. We went and proved all the evidence that had actually happened. And we proved that these guys did not surrender with a few shots fired. We mm. proved that Argentina massively lied about its casualties on April 2nd, 1982, because quite simply, they, it would have been embarrassing. 69 British gave us the, you know, one he more than a bloody nose, should we say, a bloody nose and a few black eyes to boot. And they wanted their Cape Walk victory. And what they got out of it was a, the perfect martyr um, on April 2nd. Um, 
Captain Giacchino when everyone was like, oh, great, brilliant. He's the, just like the perfect martyr for the cause. That sets it in stone. But to say that one died and a couple were wounded was utter rubbish. Mm. And we proved it. And we proved those Royal Marines did more than their job. And this could upset people because they believed they knew that. When I turned my attention onto the Argentine side of the war and started to uh, get rid of that starving conscripts, Los Chicos de la Guerra, you know, clueless boys running around in loincloths kind of thing, you know, waving sticks at the at the evil galactic empire. That's what people thought. And so I was glad to do that and change that history. So as we actually had a, a better respect and appreciation for who, we could just call them the RGs or their conscripts, or whatever, but who these people were, what they were fighting for, why they were fighting, how they fought. And some of them did incredibly well you know um uh i would definitely for anyone who thinks they understand the fulton's war go to the other side pick up last letters from stanley it will change absolutely everything you thought you knew um and we're still doing it and again this is why these um pictorial histories that i'm doing are so important you know because we would highlight these things there is one coming up um that's sort of in the works on the Belgrano, because it's very important to clear that away and include all these testimonies where you can suddenly say, oh, that's what happened and why. Because these perceptions are slowly falling down day after day. And this is something I've sort of tasked myself to do. So it's great to see the reaction from you when you're saying, you know, well, that was what I believe and what a lot of people believe. That's suddenly not the case. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and that's why it's important because, you know, it, it pertains right up to the current day, obviously, with what's going on in Ukraine, you know, because, you know, you've claim and counterclaim, and that's a particularly nasty, brutal war, for want of a better use of the word. So, you know, there'd be historians pretty much like yourselves and, and amateur historians pretty much like myself and Derek on podcasts, presumably in the years to come, that would be having these exact same conversations about what did or did not happen. And to challenge the, the myths and the stories that have come down through the years. So that's why it's important. The Falklands may have happened so many years ago, myself and Derek and, and yourself, by the sounds of we were all just children. But it's why it's still important that the works are put out there. Like people say, well, why? What's new to this? Why do we need to read about it? This is why we need to read about it. This is why we need to study it, you know? So look, you know, great chat, Philip. Like, really learned a lot of stuff here today. Um, didn't expect to. to I've learned so much. I mean, it's always interesting when you have your perceived ideas turned upside down on their heads. It requires further reading, I think, Derek, on our half. Well, yeah, what, what, what it tells me, I mean, the more even from the, the episodes that we've, we've done so far, is that what is what is history and, and what within it, uh, you know, what, what carries the truth? Um, obviously, to me, I think it's all part of a, you know, what you could say a inverted commas, propaganda machine until um you know you get a generation away whereby you know there's not so much emotion there's not, not as emotive uh, for the for the population and then you know again we need people like ricky to uh, actually care enough to go back into it and then try because you know sometimes i said you know you'd say if, if, if ricky if you weren't here maybe nobody would have picked up that mantle and we'd still know, you know, just what we know and that would be the perceived uh, truth. So, um, yeah, indeed, important investigative work and uh, certainly, uh, yeah, do keep it up. And uh, I was about to say, sorry, if you wanted a great example of how this changes, 
let me give you one more story before we sign this off. Sure. This is, quite, this is very interesting. In 2019, I was at a big Falklands War conference, probably the biggest one that had ever really been put together in Manchester. It was called the FM 37, so 37th anniversary of the war, as was at that time. And here's a good example. Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, who I know very, very well, the official historian of the Falklands War, amazing man, ultimate respect for Sir Lawrence. And um, he was having a discussion with uh, historian and journalist uh, Jimmy Burns, OBE, and they were in, in open forum in, you know, in the middle of this, uh, this conference, they were having on stage this, I'm not going to say argument, that's wrong, but certainly discussion where Jimmy Burns had stated that he had seen photographs from satellites, from American satellites, showing things like the Argentine task force at sea moving on the Fultons, which he said obviously would change our perception because we believed America had no satellites in the area and that nobody knew about it, which we did, of course. We knew that Argentina was coming. We couldn't do much about it. Now, Sir Lawrence rightly uh, challenged this and said, no, the USA only sent two satellite photos during the war. One was from a weather satellite because they'd accidentally given the photo to Argentina. So they gave it to us and said, here's what they can see. And the second came after the war, showing just all the Argentine ships in port. So there's Sir Lawrence. He's absolutely right. And Jimmy is saying, no, I have seen these photos. And he had. And in the end, of, I had to put my hand up and um, say, you're both right. But you can't both be right at the same time. Let me answer the question. And I said, Sir Lawrence, you were right about the photos. As you know, there were only two. Jimmy, you were right. You saw those photos but you thought they were from space, from a satellite. I said, they weren't. They were from the edge of space. They were taken from an SR-71A Blackbird. And every head in the room span round. And um, it was uh, what is now Brigadier Jonathan Bailey, um, who was uh, an officer in the Royal Artillery at the time, said to me, how did you know that? And I said, well, I've got, uh, you know, low friends in high places if you see what i mean i i do pick things up and he said well yeah there was certainly a lot of that he said nobody's ever said that before he says you're absolutely right i said yes i know i know a few more people who know it too um you know professor lawrence friedman had to turn around and say well i didn't know that and he's the official historian and i've got all the time and respect in the world for him but an entire room full of senior veterans historians and everybody else had to turn around and said and we stand corrected um which was quite interesting, you know, to see how all the top people turn around looking at looking at myself. We're in 2019. I think I'd only just had the one book, First Casualty. So I'm a bit Johnny come lately here and suddenly probably dropped the, um, you know, dropped the proverbial bomb of the entire event that there were American lucky blackbirds providing us information. You will not find that in a book anywhere. I know there is. I've got quite a lot on it. It will, it will come out somewhere in some book somewhere and I'll put it all together and tell you how. But that's certainly part of those secret files we have. And how much more, we do not know. But that goes to show even the top people can change every perception they have based on a new piece of evidence. Correct. And it, it, it was aired first here on your podcast. There's the there first go, podcast. Oh, another exclusive. There the we go. world exclusive. That. That's, world uh, exclusive. that's our top line. And, um, you know, listen, Ricky, thanks again. You've been very generous with your time. Keep causing trouble. 
Keep causing yeah. trouble. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the mark. That's the mark of, of you know any any good historian or writer wants to do. You know, if you're if you're if you're paddling in the same pool and you're not making any waves, to excuse the terrible analogy, then you're probably not doing your job, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, well, I've never been accused of not doing that. <laughs> well, we look forward to your future controversial yeah. works, Ricky. Um, Thanks so much. Keep us posted. We may have you back on again, and we can talk a bit more because you know we've only. I, I feel we got into it pretty pretty deep today, Derek. Deeper than expected yeah, on, on the whole Falklands War because there was just so much new to learn about it. You know, we just you know skimmed over what we thought we knew and then actually started to find out some really good, interesting stuff. Great stuff. Listen, Ricky, thanks a million. Thanks again for your Happy time. Days. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye bye.